Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. I think to add on that too is the catalyst for growth is also humility. You know, my father passed away when I was 16 from a very rare heart disease called giant cell myocarditis. I've already thought of harming myself, suicide, and I already know I'm not going to do that. There was actually a point where I got into a car accident. Welcome to DMP. Discover More podcast is a community where we strive to discover more about life through insightful and nuanced conversations with fellow students of life. Discover More is a sanctuary for seekers of curiosity and discomfort. Congratulations on choosing curiosity over complacency this week. This is your host, Benoit Kim. Let's get this started. The guest of honor this week is Oliver Phelant at Oliver, F-E-H-L-A-N-D-T. Oliver is a popular mind-body-spirit healer, life coach, and a fellow student of life who specializes in parts and memory therapy modality and emotional regulation to provide trauma-informed coaching to his clients and beyond. He has an undergraduate degree in information technology and management and pivoted early on from his digital marketing startup after he got his divine calling into life coaching, soon after the agency failed and was dissolved by his co-founder. Through his impactful work and integrated approach to life coaching, Oliver amassed more than 10,000 followers on Instagram alone. Yet, despite his popularity on social media, Oliver demonstrates his dedication to his work and clients by limiting his client list to 3 to 5 people at a time. Not to mention some of his mile-long client's testimonies could be found on his YouTube channel at Oliver Phelant. In this, he provided insightful and stress-tested toolkits and coaching to those who want to elevate their level of consciousness and get closer to their authentic inner child in both group format and one-on-one sessions. Oliver has a deep passion for trauma-informed practices because he grew up in a chaotic family dynamic and lost his father who was an ER physician at age 10 which subsequently catalyzed a series of events that led to his life down quite a tumultuous path. As a result, he was robbed numerous times, his house got broken into and was held at a gunpoint twice, and spent many years in a cycle of anxiety and deep depression. Oliver is equipped with fascinating life stories, endless curiosity to better himself and his clients, and deep knowledge in emotional regulation, performance optimality, shadow work, and masculine and feminine energy-related facilitation. You can find all things Oliver on his social media handle at Oliver Phelant, F-E-H-L-A-N-D-T. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here and to get this conversation going. 
yeah, I know we've been in the works for, to make this happen for a while. So very, very excited as well. So Oliver, as a fellow personal development enthusiast, junkie, and someone who chose the path of high impact over high income, one of the things I really had to work through is to detach my worth and who I am from what I do. Uh, because all of us as humans are multivariable beings, and we need to burn all the boxes down. So I would love to start somewhere fun with you. How would you describe who you are without saying what you do? Mm, I love that question because I feel like a lot of people just kind of say what they do when you ask about them. First couple words that come to my mind is curious. I'm a curious person, adventure-seeking, fun, weird, goofy, <laughs> someone that likes to, to play, someone that likes to explore and free-spirited and open-minded. I can't imagine myself being in a box. I'm always outside. I'm always looking for something to explore or just observe. Nature-loving, I would describe myself as well. You know, those are the words that come to my mind when you ask that question. Curiosity is the, one of the foundational ethos of the Discover podcast because I subscribe to the healing property of curiosity. When you have that curious call, if you answer that call, a lot of doors tend to open up. Why do you think for you in your life, curiosity matters so much? Because life coaching is very self-policing, right? There's no accountability. There is no supervision. There's not really like a board of certifications. Like in my clinical fields, we have to get licensed through the board. So there are nuances between how we approach healing container. But for you, how has curiosity manifested in your life? I think it's the foundation. I think the minute we stop becoming curious, we stop witnessing the world, we stop learning. As a student of life, I'm curious all the time. And for my clients, especially my work, I have to be curious. And once I'm not, I'm doing a disservice to them and myself. Because when I stop being curious, I'll just kind of settle that makes sense. I'll settle into my patterns, my habits, my thoughts. And so I'm curious, oh, I'm having this thought. That's interesting. Let me go into that. In the same way with a client, oh, you're having this thought, ask a question. Or the same way I see the ocean going back and forth as it breaks in and it retracts back. Curious, right? How are these lessons of just simple life can teach me? But the minute I'm not curious is the minute I'm, I feel digressing. So it's the foundation of my life, the work I do, and I think to continue to live a, a fun life because curiosity makes things a bit more fun. It's very interesting because you talked about, especially with your clientele and your clients' work, you not only have to be curious about their emotional processes, their automatic thought patterns, a lot of time tend to be negative for a lot of folks who especially seek out therapy or life coaching avenues, whatever that fits them. But I reckon ad additional curiosity or discovering you must do as the life coach for them is you, you have to learn about their work. You have to learn about their professional commitments, their family dynamics. So, and I know you've been working a lot with real estate clients who are financially successful and they're trying to close down and shorten the gap between their financial success and life success as a human being. Uh, so when you receive a client that you haven't worked with before from a new profession, 
or discipline. Uh, what are some of your processes trying to get to know them, not just at a professional level, but on a per personal level as well? Yeah, so a good example is one of my clients, he works in mortgage. I know nothing about the mortgage industry. He's been doing it for the last 20 years. Another one of my clients works in the auto body industry. I know nothing about the auto body industry. But understanding how that industry works, or at least how his business works, allows me to tailor what I do around them because I understand they're busy. If I don't understand the processes or what goes on within that business, I can only help them at a certain degree. Again, it's really just the curiosity side. It's just kind of asking questions of like, talk to me, like, how does the mortgage industry work? What's your day to day? What does it look like? Where are you best able to serve your people so that we can be able to tailor you and what we're doing so that you can outsource people, right? So part of it is also understanding business and the aspect of you're doing things that aren't going to yield the best results because you need to outsource that. And I don't, I can't help them with that unless I understand it. And unless I understand them first, then I can't understand how they fit into the industry themselves. So again, it, it just comes from that curiosity of just asking questions and learning and then you know, obviously writing it down and saying, okay, cool. Where do they need to be spending the most of their time so that they can maximize themselves and they're not spinning a hundred plates at the same time as an entrepreneur. So that's where I kind of take that is usually where, where do you need to spend most of your time understanding you, understanding the industry, and fit them into that piece where they can maximize themselves. Yeah. Uh, one thing I talk about with some friends is I'm not in the business of convincing, right? So my passion is in psychedelics medicine. And there's a lot of stigma around that, despite the popular movements and then the change of landscape that's happening pretty much globally, but especially in Oregon, California, a few other states in the U.S. What I mean by that is, especially with COVID, we learned that uh, feelings don't really care about facts. Depends on how you feel. It doesn't matter how much empirical evidence, how much science behind it, statistics. If that package isn't well received, then the container itself is obsolete. Uh, what I mean by that is I know a lot of friends in real estate who are very successful and they have to have a certain type of rigor, personality, dedication, but also their fascination with money. And I would say that real estate and Wall Streets tend to be very zero sum, very competitive dry throats. How do you approach clients who don't believe that they need help, but maybe they're a little bit amb ambivalent, so they still sought out maybe a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with you trying to see, oh, is this for me? But after a while, there's some resistance. Like, how do you approach that resistance or how do you approach that process? Because I don't think convincing works unless they're in a place of receptivity to begin with. Yeah, it's actually interesting to think about because I don't think I've actually worked with someone who didn't have the ability to accept that they need help. So usually I, the vetting process is like three calls and through that, I understand, do you want to do this? Do you not want to do this? If you want to do it, we'll make it work. And usually those people are the type of people that are like, yeah, I need help. But I will give an example of my one client who is very money driven, but he also accepted that he needs help. He also understood that coaching is important. I have had conversations with people who are very money driven and they're like, how would I, how would this add to my life? X, Y, Z. What I would say with that is not convincing. It's questions. You don't convince someone, you ask questions. And through questions, they might convince themselves. And it's not that they might, that I'm trying to, it's not manipulation, it's just asking questions. 
where they become curious and they say, oh, no one's ever asked me that. And that could be as simple as why. Why do you want to make the money? Why do you want to be a millionaire? Oh, because I want financial freedom or X, Y, Z. Oh, that's interesting. Why is that important? You just keep asking why a little bit more and more and more. And there's something where it's, I believe it's called seven layers deep. The more you ask why, the less logical that why becomes and the more emotional it becomes. And then now from that point, I know why you actually want to make a lot of money or why you want to be successful. And it might be something where they're trying to validate themselves through that. And they didn't even know that until we started to ask a lot deeper questions. So that's how I would approach someone like that is just continuing deeper and deeper and deeper of what's their intention. Money is just a byproduct of what you're trying to create for yourself. Yeah, it's like the feeling you attach to certain external accolades that you thought you were chasing. But then once you get there, that fulfillment and joy lasts about, what, a couple of minutes? Yeah. And then bam, motion starts. Now you're on to the next journey. I just want to highlight something that you said, questions and asking more why. And of course, that's so cliche throughout millennia and eons across the culture. It's universal. But I think all cliches are tropes. So a lot of truth do reside within those cliches. I had this conversation with the co-founder Aiden, I think a year ago, a while back, talking about how curiosity requires a prerequisite of humility. Because think about that, even for me to do this show with you or for many other guests I've had or with my friends in interpersonal life, if I am not in a position of humility, I would not have, have the thought to ask a question. Because for me to ask you a question, I must process that, oh, I think Oliver has something to offer to me. Therefore, I'm going to ask him a question. Uh, do you have any thoughts between the relationship between humility and curiosity from your personal life or professional work? I think to add on that too is the catalyst for growth is also humility. And humility, growth, curiosity all kind of coincide. You can't grow until you accept that you don't know everything, that you can learn something. And that's the difference between the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And that's how I would say humility coincides with curiosity. Is that do you have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset? You know, there's examples of people who are very talented who had a fixed mindset because they didn't have that humility or curiosity. They degressed compared to someone you could say like Michael Jordan, who had a growth mindset. He never accepted that. You know, he knew he knew he was the best, but he never stopped working. He never stopped being curious. He never stopped thinking, how can he get better at his third, you know, three-point shots or dunks or whatever it is. I don't know a lot about basketball, but I just know his story. And I think that's where it coincides. Yeah, I feel like MJs or a lot of the greats is an interesting example because they might be humble in their approach to their professions or endeavor. But then once you achieve a certain level of milestone and height, your innate humanistic side of humility subsides, right? Because your baseline of competence, your baseline of prestige increases as you climb up the ladder. Uh, what, what do you say about that? Because, yeah, a lot of people, they attach their worth to what they do. And if they have a lot of accolades, mile-long recognitions, all these titles and honorifics, after their names, they tend to put themselves on pedestal. And I'm not dissing them. That's human nature. But what do you think about that balance? Well, that's the ego in play. And we're seeing that in a very macro way 
just let's just give an example TikTok. What's happening with all these kids who are getting millions of followers and you know very quickly your ego just goes through the roof. And then your ego's attaching to oh I'm this you know I'm this superstar, I'm this influencer. And let's say you know in sports I'm this Hall of Famer. I'm a basketball star. And you start identifying with these labels instead of you're just you're just this essence, this person. So I would say through that growth mindset of kind of being in the trenches and then you're out of it and kind of achieve what you were trying to achieve and you're getting all this recognition, all these people are confirming your ego's identity of who you are, you start to lose sight of who you actually are. And then you kind of stop exploring. You stop being curious. You stop being stop having that humility. You start losing yourself over identifying with the external instead of the internal. Yeah, that's uh that's uh, well said. I want to take a slight pivot on that train, right? Of losing yourself. Whether it's ego related, whether it's ego inflation or ego deflation, because based on what happens to you, based on your achievements, you tend to think either less of yourself or higher than yourself, which is what we've been talking about. So I want to go into your personal life very quickly because I think you had a very profound timeline in your life where you lost yourself, truly, right? You lost who you are. You lost your motivation. You were deeply depressed. You lost directions in life and so on. And that's the loss of your father, especially for men and boys, literature, clinical literature suggests that having a father figure is so instrumental to their development because of the modeling, because of behaviors, and so on. Please uh, walk me through that story of in, in whichever way you want to decide, but I'm really interested in the process and the journey of how you went from losing yourself into regaining who you are, which eventually led down to this current moment across the screen. Yeah, and it's an interesting story because within that, there is multiple losing myself. And I'm going to continue that because there was a point recently last year where I lost myself at a very high point. But let's start with the low point. You know, my father passed away when I was 16 from a very rare heart disease called giant cell myocarditis. I think it's so rare that there's less than like 100 cases. I don't know if that's just in general or each year. It's extremely rare. Like there's not a lot of research on this disease. And it usually doesn't happen to someone who's in their early 50s. It usually happens to like young athletes. So I remember coming back from two weeks of swimming and dive camp and just seeing him very pale and then him going to the hospital and him telling me that his heart went from an eight cylinder to a two cylinder. And now in my mind, I would say I was very naive. I was like, oh, you know, everything's going to be fine. I'd never had the thought of... I'm never going to see my father again. And through that, he had a biopsy. He kind of died right there. But then they sent him to Penn Hospital. He was on a machine. And then I visited him for, I want to say, at least a month while he was on the machine. And I remember not really seeing him for a week just because it was the kind of the same stuff. And I think it was hard for me. I went to three different concerts. And during this time, I was, you know, smoking a lot of weed and doing a lot of other drugs, Molly, and just trying to 
get away from the, these feelings. And then I remember coming back from that three day concert thing and he passed away and I didn't get to see him. And that's when you could say destiny wrote itself for me. And I lost myself in this very deep depression that didn't really get out of until I actually took some medication. So it was really bad. I swam my entire life. It was a senior year. I became the captain because I was on the swim team most in that, you know, longer than anyone else that was a senior. And I quit after I became captain. I didn't really like swim meets. I didn't like competition. I had a severe anxiety with performance. And I think that pressure caused me to just say, nope, can't do it. I don't want to do it. I hate it. I'm done. And that was really strange for a lot of people, strange for my grandma who drove me to practice every single day and everyone else that knew me. So I did take medication. I think that did help. It wasn't a lot. It was like uh, basically Prozac. And then I got into a relationship who with someone who was kind of this, uh, say, high school sweetheart type of thing. So through that, I lost myself completely. I was still smoking weed. I was still selling. Uh, I got held at gunpoint twice. I kept getting robbed within those like kind of two years of my dad passing and then junior and senior year. So more bad stuff was happening. And I thought God hated me. I hated God. I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. It keeps bad stuff keeps happening to me. When will I get a break? That's what it felt like. Hopelessness, legit hopelessness. Even to a point, I thought I had schizophrenia because I was like just way too up in my head. Um, I didn't, I don't. <laughs> so I lost myself and I found myself within a relationship. But really what I was doing was I was identifying myself within another person. This person became a savior, the victim, me, a victim, found a savior who I felt attracted to, I felt loved, I felt seen, I felt heard. And in my mind, I was like, oh, well, God takes one thing away and gives you something else. And to me, that was that person. God took my father away and brought this person. And that's how deeply I was ingrained in that. And she loved me as too. It was this whole love story, this whole thing that was in my head. We met freshman year. It was crazy how we even met. And it was just like, wow, how did this happen? And through that, it was a four and a half year long relationship there was multiple times where I was trying to find myself as well. But this person had a track. She was going to med school. She was valedictorian. Complete opposites. If you saw this on paper, you would have been like, how is, how is Oliver dating this person? This is really weird. But it worked. It almost like was like a puzzle piece. Like her, and her differences with my differences kind of fit together. And through that, because I think this is really important in terms of relationships because relationships will bring up any trauma you have because trauma is based on your first relationships, which is with your parents. So when you get into a relationship, that comes up. So a lot of that stuff came up, a lot of toxic traits that I wasn't aware of, a lot of things I wasn't aware of just came up. And through that, after four and a half years, we broke up right after I graduated. And so that was another time where I completely lost myself, almost worse, because I think I was older and I went through so much experience and I identified so much with the savior. Right? I thought this was my soulmate. I was you know, thinking of like kids' names, like when we're going to get married and all this stuff. And then it just pff, left. Graduated college, moved in with my grandmom so I could save money and be around her. She's 95 right now. So it kind of made sense. And then we broke up. And 
I don't have a lot of friends where I was staying. And that's when that depression came back. Now, the pre- depression came back while I was in the relationship because of college and exploring that. But when I went through that breakup, I lost myself again. I didn't know who I was because I de- identified so much with this relationship that codependency just cracked. And I was, I remember this feeling of having to drive to work and do personal training and wake up at like 5 a.m. and just kind of hating my life and just being so confused of like, what is going on? What is happening? What do I do? Where is this going? And for a very long time, I tried to get that relationship back. So for anyone who's gone through a breakup and they desperately try to get that person back, I was there and I was probably the weird one. <laughs> like really, really trying to get it back. And that just kind of increased that depression for longer and longer. But through that, I met new people. I went on new adventures. I was exploring myself. I was aligning myself with people that I actually felt aligned with, not just friends from high school that we would just drink and smoke and do whatever, but people who actually cared about personal development, people who cared about mind, body, spirit, people who were doing the same thing as me, who were curious and exploring. And that's always who I was. I always wanted to create stuff with friends and not just, you know, play Super Smash, even though I love Super Smash. Um, and that's, that's something where the breakup was a perfect opportunity for me to discover myself. So that was the end of uh, the summer of 2018. And from that point on, I started really healing because for me, I just went through all the scenarios. I was like, how could I have done better? How could have I showed up as a man more? How could have I showed up in that relationship for this person more? And so I was reading and just, you know, being curious of myself and just kept looking at all these things. And it's funny because you do that, you realize what you did wrong. And then you try to get this person back. You're like, look, I get it. I know exactly what I did wrong. And I know exactly what to do now. And it doesn't work that way. It usually never works that way. So I also had to deal with that loss, which was a second grieving. And then also understand, you know, more of me. And that's where I was, I was doing personal training the whole thing with the marketing agency kind of fell through because I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't like doing Facebook ads. I like helping people. I want to help people. And my core belief is everything happens for a reason. I developed that in a mindfulness class in college. And then that extended to it is your perspective that creates that reason. And before that perspective was, I'm hopeless. You know, God hates me to... This happened to me for a reason, and I believe it is for me to help people, to be on this earth, to create some type of change in other people's lives, because why else would that happen to me? And I think this morphed into also accepting that it just is, it just did happen, and I can choose exactly the meaning behind it happening. So these last couple of years have been healing, exploring, crying, going up and down in depression, entrepreneurship, being lonely, feeling deep feeling of loneliness, from not having that person, from trying to do things different than everyone else, not being able to relate, not wanting to go out because I want to build something, but then also not having the capacity to take enough action to really create something because I'm just so distraught in myself. To then getting to a point where I was tired of the fear and accepted the courage that the feelings are going to be there, but I can step with them and through them to 
be the person I am today. And through these low points of losing myself, it actually gives you the opportunity. Cause it's like, how much lower can I go? Cause I've already thought of harming myself, suicide. And I already know I'm not going to do that. There was actually a point where I got into a car accident and that's where a lot of these investments came from. A lot of investing into coaching, investing in the healing, investing into myself, investing into retreats, investing into who I want to be instead of who I was. And I want to state this because this is really important for everyone listening because I've been talking about losing myself into low points. Now in my relationship, I do believe I kind of lost myself when I was really high up when I was super confident and I was super happy in a relationship and you kind of lose sight of everything and you stop acting the way you did in the beginning of a relationship. But recently, last year, I invested into a cryptocurrency and put a, a couple grand and in three to four months that went to 50 grand. And I was, I was like, whoa, I've never had a good, I never really had a great relationship with money because of, you know, the whole, my whole family dynamic with that. And so my ego was high. I lost myself in a different way that I haven't before because I've never been at that point. I had 50 grand in crypto. I was living. I was like, this is great. I actually stopped coaching. Not fully, but I kept, I, I stopped putting myself out there. So I felt secure. I felt stable. I felt good. I felt like I could take a break. I felt like God, funny enough, said, hey, here's a meme. This is how I'm going to, this is how I fixed everything. A meme. I thought that was hilarious. It was through Dogecoin? No, it wasn't Dogecoin. It was called um, Floki. Floki, you know. Um, just, you know, they call them like meme coins pretty much. But I invested into it pretty early. And I spent some money on just learning a little bit more about crypto. People who were like making these crazy gains. And a couple grand went to 50 grand. And in that height. I lost myself and I got scammed and I lost it all, I, all of it and even more. And then poof, I was, I just felt like I was back at square one. I felt like none of that happened again that I felt, so there was so much shame. So this is another learning experience of all the shame that dropped onto me of that I made it. And then I self-sabotage because when you're equally as high up, you're equally as vulnerable as when you're low, if not more actually, because you can go up from here. You notice, so like, yeah, I'm not doing well. So let's take steps. But when you're up here, it's actually the hardest time to really notice when you need to check your ego, that that money didn't mean anything. That now my perspective now is cool. If I got 50, 50 grand in the bank, a million dollars in the bank. That's not going to stop me from doing what I know is meaningful to me. If I kept doing what I was doing, if I kept, cool, I got the crypto in there. I don't care what this other thing is, shiny object syndrome, which is kind of like make money faster. If I kept the money in what I was doing and did nothing, just kept it, didn't touch it. That 50 grand would have went to 250 if I did nothing. But that didn't happen. And for a long time, I was the most depressed I've been in a very long time, but that was a learning experience for me. And now I know next time I'm at a high, my brain is going to want to, ooh, this, that, boom. No, 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 no. Foundation, curiosity, helping people. What's my purpose? What's my why? Is it this money? 
No. It's my work. It's me. It's the inner work I'm doing on me and the inner work I'm helping people do on themselves. Slowing down in the moment of accelerations, which is happening on a societal level, everything has to be fast, everything's about shiny squirrels, but that slowing down is really, really hard. And there's a lot there, you shared a lot. So I want to revisit quite a few topics that came up. So first of all, I'm sorry about the passing of your father. I can never imagine what that feels like, even though I grew up with a single mom. And I appreciate your vulnerability talking about medications, therapy, because I think people, especially men, have this tendency to say, oh, I, I meditate, I'm mindful, I partake in mindfulness practices. But that's not just that. You need to journal, be mindful, meditate, and therapy or coaching and medication if needed. I will know that as a clinician in training. So it's not or, it's and. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. I'm, it sounds like through the help of medications, you're able to somewhat counter some of the symptoms because depression isn't just one. Depression is a cluster of symptoms. Abolition or lack of motivations, hopelessness, despair, apathy, sleepiness. Yeah, the whole nine. So I would love to revisit the gunpoint story at one point because that's very intense. And I'm a, I'm a veteran myself in the military. But it's a very different setting in a hostile conditions versus just in civilian worlds getting held at gunpoint at such a young age, like high school, junior, senior. So I'll, I'll like to visit that at one point. I want to zoom in on distractions because for you, your girlfriend at the time was a saving grace and was a savior to fish you out from this abyss of despair and hopelessness. But then using distractions to help us heal, it's very short term. It's putting a band-aid on the symptom. And then that symptom is going to eventually outgrow the band-aid and trigger something even deeper. So I asked that question because a lot of people tend to use distractions, whether it's social media, a quick surge of dopamine hits, or using substances in your case, or using relationship in a codependent container, right? Like, oh, I don't have to think about my problem. I just have to focus on my relationship and my partner. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm exactly a great like human that. being because I'm a supportive partner. Yeah, I, I, I don't have to revisit my issues. But the only way out is through. And that's, that's a truth that stood the time. So for you, uh, what would you say to people that have this tendency, not because they're lazy, not because they don't want to do their work, but just lack of insight because lack of toolkits and exposure and experiences what would you say to those who have the tendency to use distractions to temporarily alleviate from where they are? And then once they get better, the cycle continues. I think you actually said it and it was slowing down. Because when you slow down, you can become aware. And you, when you become aware, you can then start to change things. And if you're not aware of the distractions that are taking you off your path, then there's nowhere to start. But let's say you do know you have maybe a habit of getting distracted by something. Let's say your phone, very easy distraction. The thing you can do to start changing these and change any habit that you want to change is not actually changing the habit. Just track it. Just write down on a daily basis how many times you do that thing. Let's say it's your phone. How many times do you go on social media and just scroll? Don't change the habit. Don't even try to change it. Just write down somewhere how many times you did it in a day and just keep doing that every day. 
Now, what might happen is the number might start to increase because you're getting better at the self-awareness. But what happens over time, over a month's time, it could probably just a month, four weeks, that number is going to start to go down because of something called the Heisenberg principle, where it's almost like once you become aware of something, it's like a fairy. It starts to get a little further away from you. So let's say you want to lose weight and you keep eating snacks or you keep doing late night stacks or whatever it is. Just track how many times you're doing that. How many times are you snacking in a day? Don't change it. Just track it. You become aware of it. You probably track it more because you're becoming more aware. And over time, just through that principle, it will start to reduce. So in terms of distractions, that's what I usually tell people as a very low kind of like, don't do anything, just do that. And that will actually help them become less distracted. If not just more aware of the distraction, because once you become aware, then you can really start to change it. That's amazing. That's uh, because I feel like a lot of people who lack that toolkits and who are maybe new to the avenue of healing or personal development, people get very overwhelmed by the unknown and the totality of that. You're like, oh no, I have to start journaling. I have to start praying. I have to start meditating. I have to start. It's too much. But that is such a concrete and tangible thing. And that's so minimum effort. So I just want to highlight that. That's amazing. I want to go back a little bit in terms of the highs and the lows that you've experienced. I think lows are expectedly understandable by many people, right? Because human experience is ubiquitous and pain is part of the suffering, whether it's according to Buddhist philosophy, Christian philosophies, or anything. Like suffering is part of the package. So, but then the highs is a little bit different because like, oh, shouldn't I be celebrating? Like, why is high a bad thing? And that reminds me of what Jim Carrey said. He's that I want and I wish everyone is rich and famous. So they know that's not the answer. Because when you're in the climb up, you can say, oh, I'm not happy quite yet because I don't have money. Once you get the money, you can't use that as excuse anymore because you have it. Oh, I'm not quite happy yet because I'm not famous. I don't have million whatever following. I'm not well known. Once you have that, that excuse is gone because you have it now. And now a lot of people who experience midlife crisis or, you know, emptiness syndromes is when like parents, they feel empty because they put all their basket in the, they put all their eggs in the basket of children. But then once that leaves, right? So there's a lot of intricacies there. Yeah. So that's why I, even as a clinician, when I work with my patients and clients, I try not to attribute the success of my patients onto me. Likewise, I try my best to not attach and attribute their failures to me because it has to be bi-directional. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Um, and the actual clinical profession is very different than what I perceived as once I actually started it. So back to you. I would love to, for you to share some gory details, if you may, because just hearing about this, my heart dropped. I was like 50K going to zero. Like, Jesus, like that hurts especially with the crypto hype and all that. So like, how have you dealt with your own internal chatter and what are some of the thoughts and feelings that came up during that extremely, extremely difficult time? That was by far one of the hardest times of doing the work for me. And I did have a coach who helped me and I did have friends who cared about me that I realized when I'm at, when I am at these highs, 
I tend to not ask for advice or not gain counsel because I'm kind of projecting in my mind this fantasy. And I'm like, oh, no one understands. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create it and then show them instead of being like, hey, does this look good? And I didn't do that. And so for me, there was this hardship where I had to, especially my roommate was one of my best friends who was kind of telling me like, eh, this is kind of weird, but okay. And he was kind of a part of it because I was showing it because this whole, the, the scam was basically someone who messaged me and was pretending to kind of be someone and almost like was kind of like a romantic thing, like kind of, and I was kind of getting in my head with that too. Um, so it was this, it was this really, it's just a weird situation, but through that happening, and the hard part too was because some family members kind of got roped into it too, because mm-hmm. I helped them. Uh, you know, I helped my mom make money with crypto, and I was like, "Hey, you know, just send it." Like, you know, make, you're not going to make a lot more because it was really weird because I was using whatever system they were using, and I was making money, making a lot, twenty thousand dollars in like a day because they were sending me these trades. It was again really weird situation. And I was basically just losing myself in that. I was identifying red flags that I was like, oh, this is weird, but that little projection of the what could be blinded me so much to like foundational, rational logic. So I, I, I identified that this is a habit that can happen to me. This actually happened when I got robbed at gunpoint. It was kind of the same projection of this like, Oh, but like this could happen. Even though it sounds too good to be true, it seems like it's happening and getting lost in that. So I realized that too, not telling people. So I had to have hard conversations with friends where I wasn't a good friend, where I wasn't trusting, where I didn't trust them because I didn't trust myself. And I wasn't trusting myself because I was lying to myself as I was seeing these red flags that just, again, they were just weird. It's like, this is off. And not being like, wait, this works. Do coaching. Don't touch this. It already works. I already know this thing works. So when that went away, when some family members kind of got roped into that, which was the hardest part. So when that happened, it was so much shame. At that point, I almost wanted to kill myself. I wasn't going to, but it was like, I want to just <laughs> punch myself in the face because it was kind of self-imposed. I didn't know that these things were happening and these kind of scams were happening. So of course there was a lack of awareness, but it was kind of self-imposed where there were, there were red flags. There were things I could have done differently. There were people I could have counseled potentially. And so what was really hard was that, that massive amount of shame, because this is something that's happened to me. I really believed, um, excuse my language here, but I, one of the core beliefs that I've really worked on is that I'm a fuck up. And I think that stems from maybe in my past where I would just do random stuff and maybe feel like I effed up. And so that was a belief I had to really work through because even when I got held at gunpoint, it was kind of like I effed up. I could have done this a lot differently in the relationship. I even remember in the beginning of my relationship, it was, I even remember like, you know, having so many arguments of like that she's going to leave me and she's like, I'm going to F this up. I remember telling her like, I'm going to F this up somehow. You know, I always F everything up and, I was in the beginning, but kind of did happen. I mean, I don't think it will work, but that was, that was a belief I had to really work through is I'm an F up. 
and I did this to myself. And having to live with, I kind of did this to myself. And that I have to start from zero again. And that if I didn't mess this up, with what I know now and the other projects that I know that came out around like December and stuff, that money would have, I would have been a multimillionaire because I would have invested in that other thing that was very much more sound than even Floki. And Floki, again, when it went up to like 250, I probably would have taken out like, I probably wouldn't have taken out all of it because it's down now, but yeah, I would be in a much different spot financially. So I'd also deal with that. And it was good to have my coach because he, one, he showed that in this moment, at the lowest you are, you need to give yourself love. When you don't want to the most is when you have to and when you need to the most. And that was hard. It was really hard for me. I needed to be taught that shiny object syndrome is something that I'm prone to. And I will self-sabotage myself if I don't become aware of it. And if I don't stick with foundational values of what I care about and what's important. Yeah, your, your self-awareness shines through. And I do think that self-awareness is the key to therapy, coaching, and life. Because if you're unaware of your internal chatter and what's going on in your cognitive processes and emotional processes, then how can you expect to deal with other people's mm -hmm. triggers and whatever, right? I sense a strong thread of ownership throughout your story, right? And I think that's where your self-awareness and growth mindset and your cultivated knowledge and experiences shine through because you do know that by not taking radical ownership to what life happens to us we're giving the power away right it's similar to what i just said with jim carrish thing when you have money the excuse is gone when you have fame the excuse is gone but then when you realize oh it's me right the fame the money whatever just building on top of your cup and i think that's the only way to reel the awareness back to you but it's, this is something simple, but very, very difficult. And I just want to highlight to people listening that Oliver is a life coach. He's dedicated years into educating himself, working with clients, and he's still perceptive. And he still falls victims to life and the seasonality of the ups and the downs. Yeah. <laughs> so I share that because I think a lot of people tend to put a lot of life coaches. Of course, it's a very saturated field but certain gurus on a pedestal and they think, oh, once they achieve a certain level of consciousness, life is a peach. That is not how that works whatsoever, right? Especially with your story, you went through the lows and the highs and the lows again, and now you're back to the high in a very matters. But it's interesting because before 50K gain through your crypto investment, your life was fine. You're financially comfortable. You're doing amazing things. You're doing impactful work with your clients. So that technically speaking, you lost at 50K, you went to ground zero, but it was never zero. Yeah. You had a very, very fulfilling life. But then, of course, when you see that many zero in your bank account going to zero, that fucks with you, of course. Yeah. Right? Especially when you've never had it before. Uh, You're like, yeah, whoa. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> something I want to zoom in on is on the line of, I guess, the stories we tell ourselves, which is how we open this conversation. And in a clinical term, that's uh, narrative therapy, right? That's where you work with the narratives you give to yourselves and the others because we are both the stories we tell ourselves and others because we are constantly co-creating our reality because no individuals live on an island. Like even on an actual island, there's a community, a tribe, village, whatever. 
And for someone who's more interested in how we can change our perception through language or the stories, you can look up narration therapy and also NLP, neuro linguistic programming. Those two are very forefront and very prominent modalities to work through the, some of the implicit and explicit stories we tell ourselves. And once you deprogram those, life gets very interesting, right? So, to that point, I'm surprised. And I'm curious about you kept all the stories you were telling yourself throughout your lows and the highs. I sense a common variable, God. Oh, this must be God's break for me for all the shit yeah. I went through. Like, oh, finally, life's about to look up. Finally, God is giving you a break. Hallelujah. And then God's like, nope. Yeah, no. Just kidding. You gotta learn. Another lesson. But then you are able to have God as part of your narrative through the lows and the highs. Uh, why do you think that is? For me, with God, it's not a religious aspect at all. It is a, a spiritual aspect. Uh, I think you can have religion without spirituality, and that's where it gets bad, <laughs> as we can see in organized religion. But within the spiritual aspect, I just use God as the term, as that's what most people are aware of. It's just a higher power whatever is creating this existence, this experience, this unfolding of consciousness in the universe and holding on to that, maybe not holding on to it, just using it as a narrative. It also sometimes brings a little humor. I think humor is good. And so I find it humorous. Like, okay, God, okay. <laughs> you gotta get, you're teaching me another lesson. Or, oh, it's a meme. A meme is how I made it. And then, oh, nope. So I use it also as a sense of humor. Um, nobody knows, really, we can get to that. I think there's a deeper sense of feeling or something, but I kind of use it as just that sense of humor. Uh, and it, make, it make, can make light to things that feel heavy when they're not as heavy. Like, I'm good. I have friends. I have a support system. I'm alive. I'm healthy. I'm not... You know, I lost all of that, but I'm still here. I still have clients. I still have the skills and abilities I have. So all that emotion is my ego's attachment to it. So once I can let that go, I can laugh at it a bit more. It's funny. It's unfortunate. But at this point, it's just funny. It's like, yeah, it doesn't. It only matters how much I make it matter. And that's why a really interesting thing that's actually really helped me. And this can pertain to God, too. Is sometimes it's not that deep and I'm a very deep person I'm a very deep person so that's actually a hard thing to say but sometimes it's really not it's not that deep and it's when we get too deep and we think everything is super deep that we over identify with it we over attach with it and we get kind of lost in it it's like it's not that deep like you can laugh at it I can laugh at my trauma and that's okay like trauma work can be light and so I use God as kind of that humorous take of like what whoever's pulling strings if someone is is you're funny <laughs> you're funny man <laughs> so that's that's how i use that i mean humor and comedy as medicine is once again another cliche but it does work so yeah to go back to what you said in terms of not everything has to be that deep that's something i struggle with a lot because a i'm very cognitive i'm very heady and I need to be more in tuned and get more grounded through somatic, through my body, not just head all the time, right? And as a psychotherapist in training, 
my professional hazard is incessant and too much psychoanalyzing. I freaking psychoanalyze everything myself all the time. I, I self-analyze the most. And then of course I analyze my patients and clients in a professional clinical setting. I learned not to psychoanalyze my friends or my partner or anyone in my interpersonal life I feel that. <laughs> because we don't know what we, yeah, we don't know what we don't know. And it usually backfires yeah. speaking from my experience, yeah, especially yeah. with my no, partner. I've done, I've done that before. Just, and it just happens. Yeah. It's, I'm not even trying to do it, but I'm just noticing things. Yeah, it's and I'm like, Hey, I hear you saying this. Like, I don't want to be coached right now. I'm trying to hang out. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Take off that clinical hat, please. So regarding that, because it's, it's really important. Like emotions and life is transient. So sometimes you wake up on a worse mood. Sometimes you wake up peachy. Not always because you had a great night or you had a fight the night before. That's emotions are transient by nature. So how do you work with clients who maybe attach too much to that psychoanalytical component? They're like, oh man, I had a shitty day. My meetings didn't go well. I dropped the clients. My portfolio dropped. And they're like, oh, it must be me. Something I did wrong or whatever. Like, how do you approach that container of conversation? Yeah, this is a really good topic that I was going to actually want to extend with the emotional and kind of the ups and downs. So, you know, there's certain foundational laws in the universe. And one of those laws is the law of rhythm. Things go up, things go down, things go up. There's this law of rhythm. It can be a macro, like years and years, centuries of certain certain periods and centuries of certain periods. It can also be day to day, it could be hour to hour. But we have this law of rhythm that moves like this, right? Lows and highs, right? It oscillates like this. So our emotions are the same way. Sometimes it just happens. We'll have lows, or it's a situation that happened, but we'll have lows and we'll have highs. And the thing is, there is another principle, there's another law. That is the law of polarity. And the law of polarity also coincides with the law of vibration. Now, these laws are actually higher laws than the law of rhythm. So when, because I've been there, when someone comes to me and they're over-identifying with the emotions that they're feeling, and it's so easy for us to psychoanalyze of like, why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling this way? Why am I feeling this way? Sometimes you don't even need to know why. Sometimes it doesn't even matter. Sometimes that is literal mental masturbation of just cognitive thinking. <laughs> like you're just like just jerking off your mind <laughs> um, because it doesn't matter at a certain point. So the law of polarity says, okay, I'm here. So the law of rhythm is here. Law of polarity is just two poles. So think like hot and cold. There's no absolute hot and there's no absolute cold. There's just degrees of it, right? If you go to Mars or you go to the sun, the degree of hot and cold is very different. If I go to Antarctica or I go to the Sahara Desert, the degrees of hot and cold are very different based on the perspective of that. So you also have your emotions. Let's say uh, fear and courage. They're on the same pole. So when I'm over in fear, it's just less courage. When I'm over in courage, it's just less fear. It's not absolute. They're just on different degrees. And let's say that's also vibration. You're at a lower vibration here and you're at a higher vibration here. So with that, I can actually use my mental capacity. So instead of focusing on trying to figure out why it all happened, I can focus on how do I want to feel? What thoughts, images can I bring into my mind and focus on with my attention, with my degree of focus to make myself feel a different way? So I can almost focus on that scale. 
So when they are over-identifying with something that's external, it's like, how do you want to feel? Right? You know, and so maybe they're feeling fear or frustration. All right. So what's the opposite? What, what would you say the opposite of frustration is? Uh, opposite of frustration? Or anger. Uh, con- content and peace? Yeah, let's say peace. Right? So instead of figuring out why are you so frustrated, because we kind of know it's these external things that are bringing out frustration. They're not giving you frustration. They're just causing frustration to come out of you. Let's focus on peace. What can we do to bring peace into your life right now? And so using our mental capacity, right? Because a really easy exercise is this. Think of a memory that, think of an angry memory. Just think of a memory. Close your eyes and uh, think of a memory that makes you angry. And keep thinking of it until, you know, like it makes you feel angry. You probably have a certain facial expression. You just made yourself angry. And now switch it. Close your eyes and think of a memory that brings you peace. Maybe it's a certain place. Maybe it's a certain person. Maybe it's a specific memory. And keep that memory in mind until you start to feel the physical changes of peace. That might not be as easy at first, but what I'm showing is that where your focus goes, your energy flows, and emotions are energy. So we can focus our energy, our emotions, with our focus and attention. This is some. This is very high level. <laughs> I just want to say that. But when we realize that when we're not when you're not feeling good, you have the power to make yourself feel good. Now that doesn't mean it's not okay to feel bad. No, because you have to actually accept it. You got to accept. I don't feel good. So I'm going to continue not feeling good. No. So what can I do about it? I can do stuff to make myself feel better without overanalyzing why I don't feel good. Because a lot of times that doesn't help. I used to be there. I'm depressed. What's all, why am I depressed? And just sitting in that. So like, eh, how do I want to feel? I want to feel this way. What can I do to make myself feel good? And doing that and using this, using this powerful brain that we have to alternate that emotion. So hopefully that helps because I wanted to talk about that because that law of rhythm is that ebb and flow, but the law of polarity and the law of vibration sit above it. And we can use that to our advantage. And again, it's a little high level. It's something you want to, you got to practice, but I, I do actually have a video on YouTube that talks about emotional regulation. And I kind of go into that. I kind of go into like these different oscillations and it goes into the map of consciousness, uh, which show these different levels where anger is lower, but then courage is higher. And Again, it's all a scale in terms of emotions. You know, we're not our emotions and we're not our thoughts. I think that's also an important thing. Well said. What Oliver is describing is the components of CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, right? Tracking your emotions, your thought processes, and ultimately changing your behaviors and belief system. So it's definitely, there's a lot of validity there. And it's definitely a very important thing for us to think about. And just a, a side note, a lot of us need to stop overanalyzing and some of us need to analyze a little bit more because it's a spectrum, right? Some people aren't introspective enough. Some people in this case, like we are, we are too introspective at times where it's just, we don't really need to go that deep. And life is a spectrum. It's the absolute, the absolute truth is pretty rare. I view it as objective truth subjective truth and practical truth. So I know during the COVID, uh, Department of Defense uh, unveiled and declassified UFO footages, right? 
And that's not to say aliens. UFO just means unidentified flying objects. And I had some existential crisis. Like spiritually, I was like, oh shit, UFOs, what's next? Aliens, like, oh, what is going to happen to my belief system and all these things? And then after about six hours, I was like, I mean, that's, I categorize it under the, I guess, maybe objective truth um, or subjective truth more so, where it's subjective to people's perceptions, those Navy pilots who reported the incidents. And I don't have to subjugate myself to that truth. What I care most about is practical truth, right? Like objective truth is earth is round yeah. or there's vacuum in space, no oxygen. Those are objective truth. They don't dictate or influence my day to day. No oxygen in space has no relevance yeah, to me. <laughs> gravity, 9.8, 9 whatever the gravity force is, has no impact on me. So I care about the practical truth. What can I instill and create in my own life navigating forward so that's very very interesting um so in terms of the uh, laws right i just want to go back and provide some more context since it is very high level could you explain a little bit more about the law of polarity and law of vibrations and uh, what do those mean because i think when people start throwing around these jargons and buzzwords right? They sound great, but what does that actually mean? And if you can discern what natural law actually means, because people are like, wait, that's a law? I didn't know that, right? So if you can maybe discern a little bit and just provide like a succinct explanation of what these are so we can provide some toolkits and whoever's interested in, they can do their own research. Yeah. So, you know, when we look at the law of polarity, again, we can kind of look that even with earth, we have two poles. Right. And so the law of polarity is, again, it can be a very macro thing where it's showing that the, the poles of the earth, but it's basically just showing that things are on a scale instead of them absolute. And so that's why I use the hot and cold kind of temperature. Temperature is on a scale. There is no absolute hot. There's no point in a degree of temperature where it's like, oh, it's hot. It's just less cold. And same with cold. It's, there's no absolute cold. It's just less hot. So when we can understand that, we understand there's no absolutes within this. And within that too is there's also, we can look at emotions. We can look at energy, right? And when, when you look at that, you look at vibration. So in terms of vibration, if we kind of go into a little quantum physics and we look at, you know, protons, electrons, neutrons, atoms, those are all made of energy. And everything within this world is made of that. I think we can agree to that. This water bottle right here is, if I look at it subatomically, it's made of the same stuff that I'm made of. Interesting enough. However, I am vibrating at a higher level than this physical object, this physical matter. Like earth and rocks and physical matter is at a lower vibration. And we can probably just see that by the oscillation. The, 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 they're not really moving. Actual particles. But then we go a little higher, and so let's take this to another level of, let's just say, like a human. We can see just from energy, when I'm depressed, how does my physical structure look like? It's something you can literally see, obviously, if they're very good at manipulation, maybe not. But if you're attuned, <laughs> you, can, you can tell it, right? But what happens when, when you see a happier person? You see someone more confident. You feel drawn to that person. You feel different energy. You feel a different vibration. And vibration, again, is just energy. Now, our thoughts 
on the same scale of that vibration, right? So the law of polarity is just something where like you can, we can look at different lenses of nature, different lenses of, you know, natural law where, okay, I can, I can tell like there's these different poles of things, right? Even when we look at like radio waves, there's certain ones that oscillate lower, there's certain ones that oscillate higher. Cause that's just a, a basic law, right? But I'm using it in the context with emotions because it's the same thing. Now it's not like hot and like love are on the same scale. No, they need to be on the same type of thing. Like hate and love are on the same scale of polarity. There is no absolute love and there's no absolute hate. You just have less love over here towards hate. And you just have less hate over here toward love. And we, we can understand that. I mean, would you agree that emotions are energy? That's, that's energy within the body, right? At different scales, right? Different vibrations. I mean, David Hawkins' research on consciousness kind of shows almost this vibrational scale of apathy, grief, and fear are a lower energy than courage, acceptance, and love. Yeah, and, and more concretely, so psychophysiologically, depression is the pent-up energy. Right, like the famous mental health adage that depression is the opposite of expressions. What you don't express, what you don't release gets pent up internally. So on that level, it's something more concrete for people to think about. Yeah, uh, actually, just to add to that, too. That's why a lot of times when someone is depressed, you want them to be in anger. It's actually if someone's depressed, get them angry because they're, that's a higher energy than being depressed. They're actually expressing something. So... Instead of me just going from depression to happiness, it's like, no, 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 we go up the scale, right? I want them to, I want them to get angry. I'd rather them get angry than be depressed because that means they're going to have more energy to do something, to maybe take action on stuff, to, to move. So it's also good to you know, look up the map of consciousness by David Hawkins. Just do your own little research on that. A really great book is The Map of Consciousness Explained. I think it's an amazing practical book as well of his teachings kind of all combined in that book other one is letting go by david hawkins as well i think that's the one most known by people yeah understand that in terms of this vibration it, you don't have to go from oh hate to love like there's it's a scale and it's not as black and white and i think that's yeah. really important because a lot of people can be in this absolutist view instead of like i can move up Instead of, if I'm here, I'm not here. Instead of, like, I'm here, and I can go here. I can slowly take steps up to feeling better instead of it having to just switch right away. Yeah. I mean, it's like Atomic, atomic Habits by James Clear. Incremental gains mm -hmm. over perfection, right? Uh, just to zoom in this real quick, and then I'd love to ask you a question. The, in terms of energy expenditure, once again, clinically and physiologically speaking, producing a sensation of anger requires a lot of energy expenditure. So that's why it's a lot of hard. It's very difficult for people who are in a depressive state to be angry because they can't, they literally physiologically and psychologically cannot conjure up that energy to produce that sensation. So it's very, very interesting what you're talking about. So to go back to what you said, Oliver, in terms of the spectrum and the sliding scale of hot and cold, and I really appreciate your nuance, the responses, because when I first saw, oh, hot and cold, it sounds a little bit too binary, right? Because I don't believe in binary. I think it's oneness. That's my philosophical, I guess, description. So, but it is a scale. 
hot and cold and because temperature is a great scale to use. So on that note, I know that your deep knowledge also resides in the subject of masculine and feminine energy. It's also a spectrum, right? Hot and cold and masculine and feminine. And once again, it's a sliding spectrum because most people inherently embody both characteristics. But based on your cardinal personality trait or based on your personality, epigenetics, genetics, nature, and nurture, some people exhibit more of one and less of the other, and some people exhibit both. Uh, I would love to hop on that train, you know, talking about your knowledge and interest with masculine energy and feminine energy. And this is a very, very broad stroke because there's a lot of depth in that. So I'd love for you to uh, take the lead on this train and to see why is that really matter with your client work? Because a lot of your clients are men, especially now, a lot of your clients are on real estate side. But like, why does it matter? Why do individuals, whether you're a man or a woman, should know at least something about the masculine and feminine energy and what that entails? Yeah, this is a really important topic. And one of the books that I read to really start diving into this was The Way of the Superior Man by David Data. This is also talked about in the book, The Kabbalion. I'm giving people this gem. It's a really nice, it's a really good book. Um, it is a bit esoteric, so you might not be finding a ton of factual stuff, but when you read it, the laws are very apparent within the world, right? So taking it as like, okay, as a broad thing, and then you can see it in the micro. And one of the laws too is masculine and feminine. And we see that in different planes. So the law of correspondence also talks about these different planes, which is just physical, mental, spiritual. So in the physical plane, masculine and feminine energy reflects itself how? As a man, physically, <laughs> and as a woman, physically, right? And then it also goes into the mental aspect. So the mental aspect is where it really gets interesting because especially with my clients, if someone, it's very easy to see when someone is too in their masculine or too in their feminine, because if they're over in their masculine, they're just doing all the time. They're just doing, 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 doing. They're not giving themselves space. They're not sitting in imagination. They're not sitting in creativity. They're not sitting in flow. They're not sitting in fun and play. They're just directing themselves. Right. And I look at masculine and feminine energy as the masculine is the ship, right? A ship is, a ship is hard. It's sailing. It has a direction. It, it's assertive. That's masculine. This is like you writing a goal down and moving towards your goal. Even if you're a woman, you got a goal, you're moving towards the goal. That's masculine energy, having direction and being decisive and moving. Now the ocean is the feminine, right? It's expansive. Feminine is, you could say, almost larger than the masculine because it's so much, it's so much flow. I mean, Mother Earth, Mother Earth, <laughs> the whole nature is feminine energy, right? It is that flow. So understanding that and also understanding feminine energy ebbs and flows. The sea can be calm and the sea can be chaotic. So I want to touch on this because in terms of relationships, as maybe someone who's a masculine man, understanding that if you're in a relationship with a more feminine woman, it's not, it's not going to be even keel. And that's 
that's that's emotions that's energy it's not to say like as a man i'm not going to be up and down but it's also understanding when you're in a relationship with a feminine woman if you're getting battered and your ship is crashing because their emotions are going up and down your your ship's going to crash so one understand that as a man it's like holding frame it's like you're going to get moved around you but and that's why you want to be bamboo so in terms of masculine understanding this if you're getting kind of thrown around or tested in life, it's a dancing with it. Masculine energy so much wants to be like slashing and fighting. But then that feminine comes in with the masculine where you dance with it. That's the flow. So when people understand masculine and feminine, they understand the balance is so important because as an example for me, I understand that when I'm going to business, it's very masculine. But how do I bring my feminine into that? Well, I give myself brainstorm. I brainstorm. I, I imagine. I use my imagination. I use my creativity. It's like all of that building, right? All of that imagining in my mind, this almost comes to the manifestation too, is feminine. Once I start taking action, that's the masculine. It's almost you need the feminine before the masculine. But we go masculine first and then feminine. The feminine side is always going to balance the masculine. Masculine is about giving. I'm giving. I'm giving. I'm giving myself. I'm penetrating my energy into the world. Feminine is about receiving. And here's this ebb and flow. You ever have someone who can't receive a gift or can't receive a compliment? Right? Guess what? Guess what's happening? You're disrupting the flow from both people. Because there's this give and receive, give and receive, giving, masculine, receiving, feminine, giving, masculine, receiving, feminine. And this happens in everyday occurrences. When someone gives you a compliment, when someone says something, like genuinely just receive it. But as a man, sometimes it's really hard to do, to do that. You don't want it, you just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like you, do, you don't actually <laughs> take it in, you know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't actually take it in, you don't actually receive it and be like, thank you. Thank you. And it doesn't mean I have to give again. I can just receive and feel good about that. I don't have to be doing all the time. It's like, I gotta be doing a hundred things all at once. Right, this is again, kind of going back to the men. But it's also important for the women because in the world that we live in that's very masculine, feminine women are having to be over masculine, which puts them out of the feminine, which then in relationships, has them not trusting masculine, which then creates conflict because if you're having two masculine, a masculine man and a masculine woman who's kind of like been forced in their masculine, it's gonna be butting heads. Whereas like you want the masculine and then the feminine, which then trusts and receives the masculine, then you have a beautiful relationship. So it's also understanding that. Trust is also feminine. I hope this is making sense because it is, it's very noticeable in certain people, especially for me as someone who's single and dating, I, I make sure to let the, the woman I'm dating allow themselves to be in the feminine. And that might at first be that I plan everything and that's okay. I'm not doing that to be Mr. Macho because that's what's said. It's like, no, I, I got it. 
because you probably are trying to control everything in your life already. So what happens when a guy comes in and they're like, hey, no, 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 I got it. It's cool. I found the place. I got something really nice. You just do your thing. You just be beautiful and have fun and it's going to be a great time. You don't got to worry about anything because the masculine is going to be like the worrying part, trying to control everything. And so as someone who understands that, I try to do that. And they always have a good time because I'm like, I got it. It's good. You can trust me and feel safe with me. And that's feminine as well. Not feeling safe with yourself. Yeah. I mean, but it's also important for the masculine to tap into their feminine side. Yeah. Right. It's where it's like, <laughs> guys, go in nature, dance, like listen to music, draw, maybe paint, or just do something for without the purpose of it being productive. Because that would be the most productive thing you can do. Go for a walk without listening to a podcast. Just walk. Just be present. You don't need to do two things at once. You can just walk and view the world and the beauty of it. I feel attacked because I always walk with podcasting <laughs> or music. So I'm not saying, it's, I'm not saying uh, it's a wrong thing. I'm just saying it's it, it's it's that it's that always need of like oh I gotta be doing I gotta utilize my time right as much as possible. It's like hey, I mean, you're utilizing your time. You going on a walk without listening to anything would probably bring certain insights that you wouldn't even imagine because you just gave your brain so much space to not be doing anything. Yeah, you need to create space to truly create. And this is a really endearing topic to me personally because I fell victim to the patriarchal framework of America, right? We uphold and we place and position certain characteristics of masculine energy onto the pedestal that you're only being productive when you produce. When you aren't being productive and you're not producing, you're worthless. And a lot of people that I speak with who are hardcore people who like to work out at five in the morning, a lot of that, including myself, I used to be chubby and fat. And a lot of my ambition and drive in workout and physique is because of that insufficiencies I used to feel. Right. And I learned to unprogram that. I learned to integrate and accept that and to tap into the more feminine side. Likewise, a lot of high ambition people in my experience, including my clients as well, they have to go, 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 because that go forward at all cost mindset has brought them so far in life. But then at that point, it's not becoming the service. Just because what worked for you for the last four years does not act as a predictor for what's going to work for your next four years. And that's a fact, right? That's why pattern recognition is flawed inherently, because you're creating a pattern based on isolated or certain bias experiences and you have to discern and detach that i bring this up because patriarchal framework of america i just want to contextualize this we're only speaking in america and of course there are nuances in different cultures it does not only disservice women that's the obvious side like the pink text like they get paid 70 cents every dollar those are patriarchal right that's the obvious side the implicit less obvious side is when patriarchal framework also significantly disservice men. Because of what we raise up to belief, we tend to attach our worth to that. Or if you don't exhibit certain machoism, you're weak, you're unattractive, nobody likes you. The common saying of nice guys finish last. What a, what a BS. Nice guys do not finish last. 
And there's a lot of intricacies in dating, especially in modern dating. And this isn't the space for that. But I think that's why it's one of the many contributing factors to why so many men in this modern day and age is difficulty balancing their energy expenditure and balancing their life because of the disproportional modeling of behave like this if you want to be perceived as a man. It's like, fuck that. You have to unprogram that. You have to work through that. And that's immense work. It is not easy whatsoever. So on that note, Oliver, given a lot of your clients are men, how would you advise, not advice, how would you approach a client who are deep into that water of machoism, who are deep victim of patriarchal framework that the UI, that the US is? Uh, because deprogramming is harder than programming. Unlearning is a lot difficult than learning because of neuroplasticity and neuropathways and so forth. How would you approach those certain clients who don't think they need the feminine? Because I'm a man. Yeah, which is really important because I've had, I mean, most of my clients have came to me because that was the issue. Most of them. I've had clients who were maybe a little bit too in their feminine, just in terms of they weren't taking action and being confident and directive and assertive in themselves, which is also part of it is actually teaching how to actually be in your masculine and not in this like toxic macho masculine. So one, I would say, well, I wouldn't say, I would just ask, how long do you feel you can continue to serve other people without serving yourself? And usually that will come up with an answer. And through that too, being inquisitive of, well, do you have any hobbies? What do you do outside of work? What's your passions? What brings you joy? Is it just money? Is it just your work? And through that, through these questions, they'll usually be like, oh, I, I don't really. And do you think that's an issue? Why or why not? And going more into that. You know, what would happen if you lost your work, lost your job? You know, creating these scenarios where they can start thinking outside of their own awareness. And then through that, they can see, oh, how I've been living my life. And if I continue to go down this path, I'm going to burn out. And that it's okay to take space, to take time, to, to read, to journal, to meditate, to frolic in the flowers. <laughs> Or whatever it is, you know, like create music, you know, whether that's like you just banging on something or you singing or freestyling or just listening to music, right? coinciding, you're doing all the time with being and showing them the importance of being, which being is the essence of it all because we're doing so much, but how much are you being? There's a difference between we, me doing love and me being love and the doing is a byproduct of my being. And so also showing them and highlighting that. It's like, you're, are you just trying to do success or are you just being success? Because that's different. It's different energy. And also, obviously, I want to say that through what you said too, is this over-identification. It's, it, I would dig deeper into questions of their, their worth, their self-worth, and look into maybe their past of when they were growing up, of where they were maybe forced to do something, or even their parents were over-identifying with them having to be a certain way. 
I think also school creates this already because of performance and grades. So I can already kind of like in, insinuate that that is happening within them. And then showing them is like, how important is it for you to be successful? Are you doing this just to be, to gain acceptance and validation? Or are you doing this because you actually want to? Because it's important to you. And then going deeper with that, because this is going to translate into something else that I would talk to them about, especially as a man, is that this goes into King Warrior Magician Lover. This goes into the masculine feminine, that there's these archetypes. Uh, and you could say this is a theory, but based on Carl Jung, Carl Jung's take of the collective unconscious and something like the hero's journey, which we've seen in multiple, multiple stories of the story keeps happening in this collective unconscious, is that there's these certain archetypes, these masculine archetypes, the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And there's also the boy archetypes of each of those. And there's the shadow and the light version of each of those too. So it's kind of, it's very intricate. I'm not going to go all into it, but the point is there's the king, the masculine energy, and it's also kind of, you could say the family. It's the father figure energy. It's also being generative. The warrior. Most people are in the warrior. They're so just slashing. There's an enemy. They're constantly doing. And there's a magician. This introspection. This, this reading, this learning, this knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Right? It's also manifestation. Alchemy. Creating nothing from something. Or turning something into something else. And then the fourth one is the lover. The lover. That's an entire archetype within the masculine energy, which is like the, not just the lover for um, a partner or a person or people. It's also just the, the love of life, right? It's like, it's like the artist archetype that is in men that we sometimes avoid because we're so in this warrior. Like the, all four of those are a part of that. And I, I show them if you're too much in this energy, too much in this energy pillar, you're not supporting these and each of these support each other and the thing is usually if someone's coming to me that they're already unconsciously at least aware that something is wrong so it's usually a little easy to be like hey uh how long is that going to last and they already understand that they're not serving themselves so hopefully that makes sense i know i wanted to highlight the, the king warrior magician lover because that entails to this over masculine because of an unawareness of these archetypes in general in terms of how long can you last yourself or how long can that last, what would you say to clients and just listeners that's listening who don't necessarily believe in the concepts of burnout? That, oh, my mental fortitude and my grit will always prevail. I'm a warrior. Despite the four archetypes you just alluded to, what would you say to people who don't believe in burnout because they maybe have yet to experience that feeling? I would probably ask them how happy they are on a scale of one to 10, how much enjoyment, how much joy they experience within their life. And if all of their accolades and all their performance wasn't tracked, what would they do or how they would feel? Maybe even what would you do if money wasn't an option? Money didn't matter. What would you want to do? What would bring you joy? And they might not know. And that's the thing too. That's okay too. I've had people that don't know. And so with that, because I actually haven't experienced anyone that's like, oh no, burnout's not a thing. I believe it's kind of a common thing. But yeah, if someone's like, no, I'm always go, go, go. I kind of 
through, and this is a very intuitive thing because it's, it's kind of like, I, I don't know yet until I start to quiz it, but usually through a series of questions through that, if you believe burnout's not a thing, how long can you just run off of willpower? How long are you just running off of fuel without filling it up? What are you doing to fill it up? Is it just driving? Are you ever taking a stop? Letting the brain calm down. Letting the body calm down. And is everything based on the performance or is everything based on the enjoyment of the experience? Those are tough questions and people might not know. And if you're really deep into it so much to a point you don't believe burnout's a thing, that might not register right away. It may be something just to think about. Where do you feel like it's not okay to stop? And what do you feel if you do stop? Because that's going to give you all the answers you need to know. <laughs> don't do anything yeah. and see what comes up. And if you're bored, sit in that boredom because that's important too. That's a sign. Yeah, that's, uh, I love that. Once again, your inquisitive nature and your approach to life coaching, emotional regulations, performance, etc., all shines through through your curious approach of asking one more question. And it's almost like you're letting, it's like the idea of let children lead with their curiosity. In this case, you're leading or you're letting and allowing clients to lead you through their curiosity. Uh, because at least in a clinical container, one of the biggest no-no is we're not always expert driven. Sure, we might be an expert in certain modality and approach, but clients and patients are always experts of their lives, period. We can, doesn't matter how much literature, how much neurobiology, how much theories we learn, we process, get licensed. You don't know about their lives and themselves as they do. Psychoanalyzing is still external. Internally, they know their best. So I just want to highlight that, that I love the way you let your clients lead with their curiosity because I do think it's, it's really important, you know? Yeah, I think that's what differentiates a good coach to not even a coach. I do both. At times I will obviously, depending on the goal or certain action steps, like, hey, we're going to take these action steps, but also we'll always ask the question. A coach, I am helping them come to the realizations themselves. I'm not doing anything besides helping them come to the truth of them. I'm not like showing them the truth. I'm helping them discover the truth through questions and inquisition and them coming to the answer themselves instead of me just being like, do this, do this, do this, do that. Now I might be like, hey, so I have these habits in here, journaling, meditation, X, Y, Z. Why do you want to do those? And I don't care if you do them. I don't. It's not, I'm, you meditating is not for me. <laughs> Why do you want to meditate? Because I've come, you know, it's very easy for me to just tell them what to do and they just do it without thinking about it. But I, that's not going to help. This entire process is empowerment. So a good coach will empower, right? And that's where the curiosity comes. Curiosity empowers you through you discovering yourself and your truth, not someone telling you. That's why I'm not a guru. That's why I don't like gurus, because you're abdicating the responsibility to think for yourself instead of thinking for yourself and taking this. How do I use it? Ooh, taking that. How do I use it? Instead of, this is my way of living. This is my way of being. Yeah, it's like the uh, mental masturbation you alluded to earlier. It's more like spiritual and intellectual masturbation, right? It just, it's, it's all, and it's, it's very, very important to really discern that. 
Um, yeah, so in terms of, I guess I won't go back to the question of getting held at gunpoint because you sort of brushed it through, through passing. And I think your high level experiences that you've alluded to really illuminate that curiosity really heals. And then men and women both need to tap into their ubiquitous characteristics of feminine and masculine. Um, yeah, because I just been talking a lot about just toxic masculinity, not just in light of this conversation, but because of Ukraine, because of Putin, right? I mean, that's what that is. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of political issues. But on a personal level, Putin did what he did because of his face value or the perceived face value, which is rooted in toxic masculinity. And I doubt Putin or people like that read about personal developments or learn about bettering themselves. Uh, I share that because I don't think you can empower other people. I think by nature, empowerment has to be from within. You must empower yourself because that's what empowerment is. You're going from no power to some power. And if other people bestow that power to you or instill it through well intention, it doesn't last, right? Even in a clinical container, if you guide a patient and a client go through a clinical breakthrough, they're not going through a breakthrough. I robbed of their future possibility to go, to go through a breakthrough themselves, which is ultimately what they need to integrate the lessons, you know? So how do you balance that? Oliver, how do you balance between your urge to help, help, help? I just want to instill, I just want to provide as much useful toolkits as possible. But then you're like, wait a minute, am I robbing of their future prospect to go breakthrough on their own level, on their own timeline? As a life coach and a healer, how do you balance that too? Yeah, that's really interesting because that's something that I, I think about too in terms of Maybe the services or tools that I provide, or even you know, future products, uh, just things I want to create. It's also how do I create this in a way that it empowers the person? Because I've had clients that, well, uh, not every client, but a recent client where he's like, just, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Line it all up, and you know, just have me do it and bust it. I'm like, yes, but no. <laughs> I can't just tell you what to do or you're not going to learn. You're not going to actually change, right? You need to, you need to know, one, why do you want to do it? And then two, instead of me just telling you exactly what to do, we need to, we need to focus on you instead of just doing this next personal development. That's the thing in that personal development that can be the, not negative, it's just the reason why a lot of people get stuck in personal development and they just kind of st- you're kind of stuck in this loop of personal development. You keep buying the next course, the next thing, the next event, and they seem to not have fully changed or got to where they want to be. It's because they're over-identifying with some tool and just following it, thinking just following it is going to be the savior instead of understanding why are you following it, what aspects of it are you going to integrate within yourself, and working on you first. So... I, I, I mix it up. I think it's important to have some tools and checklists of things to do. Um, the app I use for my clients is kind of a checklist of, hey, you know, track these habits because they're going to help you in your mind, body, and spirit, right? And here's why we are doing it. Why do you want to do it? Tell me why. I don't care if you do it or not. 
I want you to do it because I know it's going to help you, but it, it doesn't matter. It's not about what I want. It's what you want. Why do you want to do it? Why do you want to meditate? And so then I see if they don't do it, I'm like, because I can track it. I see like how consistent they are. Like, hey, I haven't seen you been meditating. How come? Like, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't have enough time, or I just haven't. It's like, okay, well, you said that you wanted to do it because of the X, Y, Z. Is that actually true, or were you just saying whatever? Right, because then you can catch people. You can call them out. And coaching is also about calling people out, the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard, and sometimes i got to lay, lay in on people. I mean, that's how you grow. So with that, it's empowerment comes from truth. If I can circle this all the way back around is empowerment for me is trying to create tools where people can get the truth, get the truth of it. And that might be through me calling them out of like, well, you said this, but you're doing this. So what you're saying is different than your behavior. So your values is different than your behavior. And this is where empowerment comes because if your behavior doesn't match up with your values, you're lying to yourself because your behavior does not align with this. So if I focus on the behaviors. I get the values first and then we and then we look at behaviors and then I find the mismatching. And that's where I can that's where the work is, because then you can call them out and they're like, oh shit. Now I know what to change. No, that's that's it. yeah, the power of discernment and you lean into those gap of discrepancies to not course correct, but you show that data and show that to the clients, right? To empower them to do something about it. In that sense, how would you define and why do you think accountability is important? I think accountability is one of the most important things for people who need it. I think everyone needs it. I also believe that certain people are much better at self-accountability as a, just a nature of people. Certain people just are better at that. Other people, as a self-awareness thing to become aware of, other people need accountability. Or they just thrive much better knowing that they are accountable to someone else. Or someone else is keeping track of the things they're doing. And that helps the majority of people. And so when they understand that I can see what you're doing and you're tracking what you're doing, then I can hold you accountable doing the things that you said you want to do and the person that you want to become. I don't care. I do care. <laughs> I'm saying it. I do care, but I, I don't care in the sense of like, you're not meditating for me. You're not doing the workouts for me. You're doing it for you. I'm here to just call you out when you're lying to yourself. So with that, accountability is so important. I know that I'm someone that works even for me, I know I work better off of personal accountability, not personal accountability. Having someone else accountable is much easier for me. Whereas I know people who are just boom, they'll, they'll do whatever they need to do with no one holding them accountable. But I want to just continue this. But usually those people create some type of system within their life where they're creating accountability, right? Whether that's like, creating a schedule, let's say you're trying to start a YouTube channel and you're creating a schedule. And so you announce a certain schedule. And so now you're being held accountable through you announcing a certain schedule, right? It's not like, you know, they don't really, your audience doesn't really care if you stop doing it, it doesn't matter, but that can create personal accountability instead of having someone uh, like an actual person or a friend where you're like, Hey, I'm going to do the schedule. Can you hold me accountable? 
you know, if, you know, here's a hundred dollars. If I don't do it, you know, you can keep it at the end of this week, which is actually like a specific type of method of accountability. Um, and then that obviously creates a different type. So that's how I look at accountability is it can, it can be different for people. Some people definitely need it. Some people can kind of have that nature already in them where they don't really need it. Yeah. For those individuals with, I guess, genetical and psychological traits that give them higher threshold of willpower, because that's also a spectrum, yeah. just like threshold for pain, threshold for risk management, like people like Alex Honnold or insane alpinists and just people doing wild shit with no safety gears. They, on a genetical level, they have higher thresholds for risk and pain and adrenaline. That's a fact. So similarly, or not similarly, that those individuals with higher thresholds for willpower, they also tend to rely and rely on people less and tend to ask less help because they feel like, oh, all I need is myself, right? Uh, I'm speaking for myself where, like I said, I'm a veteran. I have a certain level of willpower and self-discipline. And a lot of that is just genetics. Shout out to my parents. The big, one of the biggest things that I have to struggle is what, that grounding takes a village. That sometimes I just can't ground myself. When I'm in my depressive seasons or life just hitting the fan left and right, I need to seek help. I need to call for help. And that's something that's harder for me because I have a certain level of discipline and willpower, quote unquote. So it's, it's so nuanced that not one side of the spectrum or characteristics is bad or good. It's just some of them have serving components and some of them have disserving components. But once again, you have to be self-aware and cultivate the awareness on the self to understand anything that we're talking about, you know? So I just want to um, preface that for this conversation. I just wanted to touch one point on that because I think that's super important in terms of this kind of like, um, I can just do it myself. I think that is nature, but I can also see how that can be a little bit of nurture in terms of where did you, where in your childhood did you feel like you couldn't trust other people and you had to be self-reliant yourself? So sometimes I can see people who are too much like that, that at some point in your childhood, you had to kind of come up with this, this, this belief came up where, okay, I maybe can't rely on my caretakers as much as I thought I need to be self-reliant and you almost create this narrative that I have to do it all myself and I can't really trust other people, which as you said, you know, it takes, takes a village, you know, community is important. Trust is important. And it's really self-trust, self-trust that I can actually trust someone else. And that's hard for people who are very self-reliant, but that's the masculine feminine, being able to receive that, allow that humility of that. So I just wanted to touch on that because I think that's important too, that it can kind of just be there, but also understanding that that can be a byproduct of the, the nurture of that situation of developing that belief. Because I know for me, that's, that's always been hard. It's like, I feel like I have to, I had to not get help. I have to do it all myself. And usually a lot of bad things happen when I just did that. So <laughs> I, I realized how important that trust is. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and uh, like I said, as always, it's not nature or nurture. It's always nature and nurture. And we are always the byproduct and reflection of our environment, right? So. Uh, I appreciate the nuances for sure. 
So to my previous question that your curiosity shines through, otherwise you wouldn't be on this podcast, right? As a fellow student of life. At the same time, people who are very curious have tend to be ferocious readers or really love the avenue of self-education or just growth through knowledge, through insights, through podcasts, books, etc. As a content creator and who just also want to live life in addition to just grow, grow, grow all the time, a famous artist, David Cho, calls that process porn. Everything becomes a process. The grind's a process. Growth is a process. And that's also an addiction that a lot of hustlers have to grapple with, that you have to take a break sometimes, which is some of the thread we've alluded to throughout these conversations. So in terms of the balance, because you have to cultivate balance, life or capitalistic America does not give you balance. That's not how capitalism works. You have to create it forcefully. Otherwise, there is no break. There is no balance. So on that note, how do you personally, Oliver, balance between consumption and creation? So I really, I really like the, the aspect of that, of everything becomes a process when nothing is really a process and we over-identify with that. I've definitely come to a point where I realized how easy it is for me to actually to over-consume and get lost in either consuming too much books, too much information, and not doing enough. So I try to make sure that for me, I have periods of time where this is what needs to get done in terms of creation, what I want to create. And in terms of consuming, what am I feeling called to learn about or read about or learn about, whatever it is. And then balancing that and also allowing, it's also important, allowing ebbs and flows of it not having to be perfectly balanced. Feeling into a season where, you know what, I'm feeling like I want to read more. I just want to read. I want to read for a couple hours today and I'll do stuff after that. I don't have to just read for 20 minutes or 10 pages as my routine because <laughs> that's where it becomes a process. It becomes less of a flow and more of like, we're not robots. So I know that works for certain people, but I also want to encourage and challenge that if you're feeling called to maybe read more of a book you're reading and you're really enjoying it, it doesn't have to be 10 pages or 10 minutes or 30 minutes. Maybe just read more and that's okay. Or you're creating. Oh, you, you're, you're in a role in creation. And you're like, oh, well, I only had it booked for two hours or one hour. But you're, you're feeling it. Create more. So I think, I think it's becoming, for me, it's, it's becoming attuned to this, my intuition and what my heart is saying of what I want to do and not just having it scheduled because I've, I've tried to have it just scheduled and that works. But then I think for me, it, it feels constricted. And I think there's a levels of there's structure and within that structure, there's flow. So I try to create that structure and then I try to find that flow within it. So, okay, well, I want to read this book and I want to read this book around this time and then get stuff done. But within that, that, this flow, so that's what I'd look at it as, is if either side can become too rigid. If you're too flowy with it, you're like, oh, I'm going to create, or I'm going to consume. Because it's very easy to just consume on your iPhone. You just pick that bad boy up or you're on your laptop and you just start watching YouTube videos. Next thing you know, I'm watching like bears and gorillas. And I'm like, how did I get here? Uh, that's just my ADHD, you could say. But 
I know how easy that is for me to just consume. So within that is the awareness of the intention. And that's, that's what I've found balance with is intention of consumption. Intention is very important in consumption and in creation. What am I creating this for? What I, what am I consuming this for? And either one's good. I could just be like, oh, well, I'm just trying to pass the time and I want to, I want to watch elephants because <laughs> I want to watch elephants. And that's okay too, right? So intention works with both of these. And that's where I found the balance. And that's where I found flow within it not being so rigid because I think it can be so rigid. And that's where we over-identify with everything being a process. Yeah, I mean, elephants are very majestic creatures, so they're they're cool. They're cool. Yeah, that's so funny. It's very meta that you just talked about rigidity, and even the nuance and the spectrum of the balance between creation and consumption. I just had this meta moment that oh, even in my phrasing of question, it was a little bit rigid because I was asking how do you deal with consumptions or creation, even though we were talking about ants this whole time. And I learned that about myself a long time ago that I'm very type A and one of the downfalls at times with type A-ness is the rigidity that comes with that. But then the upside of type A is like unwavering commitments, being impeccable with our words like Don Lewis, the four agreements, right? So once I say something, I will deliver what I said because I spoke it into existence at all costs. But the flip side of that is I tend to be rigid. You know, but I've learned this recently that I don't have to rewire every single of my fiber. I can accept some and try to improve the others. You know, it's not black or white. It's not all or nothing, which is definitely my personality downfall that I tend to be prone to black or white thinking often, which is why I'm really big on nuances because I've lacked that for a majority of my life. Um, yeah, this has been an awesome conversation, man. The I know there's so much more depth to map of consciousness, the archetypes, personal developments, spirituality, life coaching, and so on. Um, so before I hit you with the, I guess, concluding questions about the Discover More, I want to ask you from a human to human in terms of someone that might be interested in life coaching or who want to entertain and indulge the curiosity to see what happens on the other side. As I alluded to earlier in the episode, life coaching industry is becoming very, very saturated and oversaturated because of social media. Uh, certain people just have uh, better looks or certain charisma makes them easier to receive clients and etc. And of course, you're a good looking guy. But for people, <laughs> for people who are skeptical about life coaches, what would you say and how would you define what life coach actually is? It's a good question because I have clients who are in their mid forties and they're successful business owners and I'm 26. Life coaching is not me being a guru to your life. Life coaching is me helping guide you through what you're going through within your life. I'm not coming from a higher point of, oh, I've experienced and lived so much life and I'm going to life coach you. I am coming from, and I, I also use life coach just as a broad term. I don't even think that fully identifies what I do because a lot of it's very emotional work. But as a life coach, quote, I'm just coming as a guide with where you're like, you're walking on your path and here I am. I'm like, hey, 
You seem like you're a little confused or maybe you want to get somewhere. Well, I can help you get there. What's going on? Right? And I'm just helping guide you through what you want and what you need in your life. And also helping you when you're walking on that path and the freaking wolf attacks you or you, you know, you quote unquote break your leg or, you know, something happens. That's also where a life coach is very important, where the un, the uncertainty or the unexpected things happen in your life, where you have that support system, right? That's also so super important. A life coach is a support system. It's a relationship that you have with someone that you can tell them anything and everything that you want, depending on the person. I pride myself in the sense that, you know, like people tell me things they've never told anyone else. And when they're going through certain things, and I understand people have partners, but it's, they're not your coach, right? Your, your partner is not your coach. Your friends aren't your coach. They can hold space for you, but they might not be, know how to hold the same space and inquisition and curiosity to help you grow through the process. So as a life coach, that's what I would say. It's not me coming from a higher guru point of telling you what to do in your life because I've had all these experiences. I think I've had a good amount of experiences to come through a certain perspective, but I'm just helping you guide you in your life. Not about me, it's about you. Hopefully. So not sense. a lifeline. Yeah. So not a lifeline, but a support system. Yeah, exactly. And the work I do, I would say is a bit different than other life coaches that may just kind of be a lot of accountability and action steps and like goal setting where that's an aspect of what I do, but then also the other aspect is the trauma-informed approach of, no, let's actually do some integration work and feeling into the things that you haven't addressed, you know? Like, what's what's heavy on your heart right now? And then working through emotions and having them actually feel into the emotions and going into past memories and healing those so that they actually experience less anger and they actually experience less triggers because we're actually going in there and going through memory reconsolidation. So that's also an aspect of what I do that's a bit different. That's why, that's why I have healer on there, um, just as that term, because part of it's also healing. It's like both. So when you're looking to someone to get coaching or help, whatever it is, discernment's important, and you see what they're doing. Are they just trying to tell you exactly what to do? Are they doing integration work? And what's your intention? which is important. You just need someone to hold you accountable, set some goals, um, maybe get, get into shape or hit a certain milestone. And when they do that, are they just accepting that? Do they say, okay, are they, just, are they a yes man to you? Because if they are, they might not be the best coach for you. Because as a coach, I'm not just a yes man to my clients. I'm going to question them. I'm going to question their goals because that's important. It's, it's very, very, very important. And yeah, like I said, you do want to say yes to a lot in life, but in terms of cultivating a culture of accountability, you know, saying yes all the time is probably not going to work out, especially if you're paying a lot, because I know you're not cheap, Oliver. Obviously, you're very competent and your work speaks for yourself through this episode as well. And just for people who are listening, as I've said in the introductions, Oliver is officially certified in level one and level two for parts and memory modality, which is part of the trauma work therapeutic modality that a lot of clinicians use. So I definitely see the intersections and overlaying aspects between life coaching air quotes and therapists slash healers who really focus on the emotions. 
because you know that emotions and belief systems are what fuel our actions and behaviors. Mm-hmm. So, and for anyone that's interested in, and of course, do more research, we're just the uh, vehicles for information, just based on our respective experiences. And I'm consciously not diving into parts of memory because I don't want to geek out and talk. I have a lot to say about trauma yeah. personally, anecdotally, and also clinically. So that's for another time. As we come to an end with this episode, Oliver, I've had a lot of fun, man. I know we connected uh, like a year and a half ago and just through life, we were able to finally make this happen, which I'm really happy about. So for the Ethos of Discover More podcast, where it's my intention to host and facilitate what the guest has to offer, in this case, you, and through free exchange and intersections of our conversations, hopefully people can take away and discover more something about them. So in this case, the question is twofold. Fold one, as the guest of honor for this week's episode, after this encompassing and insightful conversations, what's something or a certain domain in your life, professionally or personally, that you would like to discover more about? And the second fold is, what would you like to encourage and challenge the listeners to discover more about in their respective lives after listening to this insightful conversation with you? Something that I, for me, that I recently took action on is my hobbies, actually. So my, my balance of masculine and feminine has been, has been good, but it hasn't been great. You know, in terms of the hobbies I have, the things I explore that bring me joy. And so I recently joined a Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu studio because I knew that I really feel good doing that type of training. And it's kind of also integrating my warrior in a different way and giving me space of problem solving in a different way. And so for me, that's what I'm exploring and discovering is my hobbies. You know, next, I want to explore an instrument and learn that not for the purpose of me having to do anything crazy, but again, I don't want to fight. I don't want to do a competition. Maybe, I don't know, but I'm just doing it because it brings me joy. So I'm discovering more of what brings me joy and fills my cup that's outside of it being productive. And that's what I'm discovering more. And I'm really having fun with it. It's only been a week two. And I would, I would have people explore, people listening to discover more of what brings them joy. It really, really just really focusing on really discovering that what, what brings you joy what brings you enjoyment what's fun for you in your life and doing more of that because when you look back at your life you're going to remember those things that really brought you fulfillment and joy so that's what i have to say yeah hopefully uh, I know we'll probably meet up in person when I visit Philadelphia soon. And hopefully you're not going to have a broken leg and an arm from yeah. Muay Thai. Hopefully you're well, still hopefully in that. the whole piece. It'd probably be jujitsu because I know I, I have some background of Muay Thai, but I have no background in jujitsu. Yeah. So hopefully you're still in one piece. Yeah. And yeah, for anyone that's listening, that of course, what Oliver said is once again, truth of an eon, right? It's a timeless classic that seek out more joy and just replicate that and do more of that. I, I talk to a lot of elder folks in my life because in Asian culture, we revere. There's a certain heightened level of reverence for those who came before us. 
more so than our parents or the grandparents and the elders in the community. A lot of indigenous and Eastern cultures have the same philosophy, right? Like family pillar. And we need to honor those elders because they have so much more experiences. If anyone here have opportunity, just visit a senior home or skilled nursing facilities and just talk to elders and ask them. And I promise you ubiquitously across culture, time, space, country, they will all say they don't really remember the professional milestones or, you know, whatever gave them joy in a very superficial and short-term level. And I just want to highlight what you said, Oliver, is that triggers are bidirectional. There are triggers for negative responses, but also triggers for positive and happy emotions. And you have to discern both triggers. You, you can't just know about what ticks you off. That's helpful, but not too helpful. You want to find both ways, right? Like, oh, this pisses me off, but this also makes me feel good. So you know, and once again, it's self-awareness. That's like the thematic word of the episode, seems like. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this episode. And I feel like you've provided a lot of a lot of really important topics and highlighted a lot of the toolkits that I think could be immediately implemented upon finishing this episode for whoever want to try this out. And once again, we're not experts. We just have been able to navigate the complexity of life through this intentional landscape. And through that, we were able to, I think, have a pretty enriched and vast life for how young we both are since I'm almost 30. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that people can take some time and just marinate and sip on what we said because curiosity heals, but at the end of the day, there is no curiosity if you don't know who you are, right? So with that being said, do you have any parting comments, parting wishes, uh, maybe like a high-level coaching message you want to send to people because you indeed are a life coach and a healer. Yeah, I think the thing that's coming to me is love is the answer in everything. Everything I've noticed in terms of trauma within myself and other people is a lack of love. And so a question you can ask yourself on a daily basis is how can I show myself love today? Who needs my love today? What parts of me need more love? And viewing your life as a garden and what happens when you don't give those certain plants or flowers love, they start to die and dwindle. So asking those questions of where you can pour more love into you, into other people, into different parts of you, is going to help you identify what needs some tender care. And love is discipline. Love is work. Love is hard. Love is responsibility. Love is respect. Understanding that too. Love is not just kisses and hugs, but it's doing the push-ups and doing the runs and the planning and the executing as well because that's showing yourself love. That's what I would say. Love is the answer. Yeah, and self-love is very, very, very challenging at times. But like we, how we started the interview is that when you feel like it's the hardest to pray, that's when you need to pray the hardest. When you feel like it's the hardest to self-care, that's when you really need to freaking push that self-care envelope and Forget about everything else and you just prioritize yourself because self-care isn't always rainbows and sunshine and peachy. 
self-care could be doing shadow work, doing trauma therapy, talking to a disconnected family member that you held resentment for for X amount of years. So self-care looks different, but once again, everything is nuanced. And through, self, through self-awareness and curiosity, I think you can make life a lot more interesting. So with that said, for all the people that's listening, uh, I really thank you for hopping on this week's Discover More train. And I hope that you continue and always choose curiosity over complacency because curiosity heals and you don't know what life will take you next based on your split decision at the moment by answering your curiosity. And as always, I will include all the show notes and all the resources we discussed in this episode. And I strongly, strongly and highly encourage people to check out Oliver Phelan's Instagram account, his coaching website. He does offer a free one-on-one coaching call as like a discovery process. And that's free. You know, as a, as a grown-ass adult, I learned that freeloading opportunities are rare in adulthood. So if anything is free, especially with this amazing life coach and healer, Oliver, get that free discovery call because it's, it's free. And he, I think he will impress you way beyond just the scope of this conversation. And as, as always, I will see you next time.